You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On May 8th, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi sat down with Washington Post Live for a conversation about her legislative priorities for the 116th Congress, her thoughts on the 2020 election, and where she might find common ground with President Trump. Let's listen. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here at Washington Post Live. And Speaker Pelosi, really appreciate your time. Know how busy you are to come here to the Washington Post to have a conversation. And let's start. You're someone who, as Fred was saying, has had a remarkable career. You understand power and the power of Congress. And you've had pressure from the executive branch in recent weeks, especially from Attorney General William Barr. Mm -hmm. Today, the House Judiciary Committee is considering possible contempt proceedings. Do you believe he should be held in contempt? Well, first, let me thank you and thank Fred for his kind words of introduction, for the opportunity to chat with you. I understand some people from Trinity College might be in the audience here. (laughs) It's a great school. I just want to acknowledge that Fred's mom, um, excuse me, Bob's mom went to Trinity College. She's watching. She'll appreciate it. um, There's some overriding principles And one of them is the guidance from our founders, e pluribus unum, from any one. They couldn't imagine how many we would be or how different we'd be from each other, but they guided us to remember that we are one. And when we make decisions and prioritize actions and consider options, that oneness, what keeps us together as a nation, is a very compelling uh, imperative for me and for uh, House Democratic leadership. So impeachment is a very uh, divisive, very divisive uh, course of action to take. We shouldn't do it for uh, passion or bias. Or uh, it has to be about the presentation of fact, and it has to be about patriotism, not about partisanship. So when uh, you talk about, and Fred talked about, uh, the diversity in our caucus. I always say that diversity is our strength. Our unity is our power, to get to your point of power. Yes, I think that the attorney general should be held in contempt. This contempt is about the withholding of the Mueller report in an unredacted way. Uh, The accommodations that the committee has tried to make, whether it's about you know, sources and methods. I'm longer on intelligence than anybody ever in the history of the Congress. I appreciate protecting sources and methods, some law enforcement concerns. That's not a reason to give us the report. It's an excuse not to give us a report, because we all agree that certain things should be redacted. But they were in the course of accommodations, and boom, the uh, administration just said, if you don't you know, we're going to make this executive privilege more on the subject than you ever want to know. Yes, should be held in contempt. Now, that doesn't include his not showing up to uh, testify before the House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee, like it's safer in the Republican majority in the Senate. It doesn't include a misrepresenting, withholding the truth from the Congress. Some would call that lying. I don't like that word. But you can't do that. You cannot lie under earth oath to Congress, because you're lying under oath to the American people. So that's a whole other thing. But for the purpose of the course we're on right now, uh, in terms of um, 
uh, withhold, withholding the information, uh, the uh, unredacted version of the Mueller report, for the American people to see and to know. And again, the accommodation uh, that the committee was putting forth, I don't know if all that's in the public domain, but it's, it was very accommodating. I would have wanted more. But the committee, in its wisdom, it had a very measured approach. And I think, uh, I don't want to say anybody is surprised. Nobody should be surprised about anything around here. But uh, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, we thought they'd just come back with a counter offer. But they will you bring a, will you bring a contempt resolution to the floor, or are the negotiations still ongoing? Well, I would leave, I'm a big believer in the committee system, and I respect the judicial Judiciary Committee, and Jerry Nadler's doing a wonderful job, as are all of our chairmen, Elijah Cummings, Virginia Neal, Maxine Waters, uh, uh, Elliot Engel, uh, uh, Adam Schiff. They, they mostly have the six committees that are interacting on all of these subjects. And uh, they, they'll, they'll, today, take their action in... In, uh, in the committee, and then the next step would be to bring it to the floor, and we'll see what their recommendation is about that. One final thing on the Attorney General. If tensions escalate and continue with the AG, is impeachment of Mr. Barr on the table? Well, nothing is off, ever off the table, but uh, I, I would say that uh, there's... I wish everybody would take a deep breath and be almost prayerful about this. Because this is a moment, this is a moment in our history where this, people are talking about, well, is it, is it uh, um, indictable and can you prove it in a court of law? There's something about a sense of decency that should be a standard of our, uh, the performance of our, the all of everyone in, in public policy, everyone in our country. But for the White House to be uh, just degrading the office that the president holds, degrading the Constitution of the United States, degrading uh, the first branch of government, the, uh, the legislative branch. It's just not decent. So a sense of decency, a sense of ethical standard, of high ethical standard. So they keep saying, well, this doesn't break the law. Well, since when would that be supposed to, to uh, in the Congress, we have a, a, a rule that says you cannot bring um, discredit to the House of Representatives, they, they don't have any sense of that. So again, how do we honor the vision of our founders about a constitution that's three separate branches of government, co-equal branches, checks and balance, separation of power, their vision, and why they did that? Because they didn't want a monarch. And the aspirations of our children, because every day when they're doing these things, they're taking attention away from other things that they're doing, things we are doing uh, to get results for the American people. But in their own case, last week when the Attorney General was before the Congress misrepresenting the facts, he uh, was at the same time pressing his case to completely eliminate the Affordable Care Act. But what was the attention was on what he was doing in Congress. The next day when we passed the Climate Action Now bill on the floor of the House, and all the fuss was about what Barr said the day before. At that same time, the president was undoing the regulations for uh, or oil drilling that were put in by them. So it, this has an impact on public policy because they're there for the special interest. Understand that when you're watching them, what they all have in common. The president, whether it's the gun, you know, look at gun violence again today. 
our hearts are broken about uh, a, a school shooting in Colorado, but whether it's a gun special interest or the uh, fossil fuel special interest, whatever it is, that's who they're there to serve, and that's why they're all in sync. Mitch McConnell, Attorney General Barr, President Trump. What about Don McGahn? You're facing challenges not just from the AG, but the White House is citing executive privilege, mm -hmm. thinking about asserting it uh, as they make their case against Congress. Can you hold him in contempt, Mr. McGahn, for refusing congressional demands? Well, we don't know that he has yet. Let's take it one step at a time. Let's see where it goes. And I have said the president is goading us into, wants to goad us into impeachment because that he knows, as uh, do I, that, that uh, that's a, not a good thing for the country. Well, maybe he knows that, but he knows that I think that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> he knows that I think that. But the, the, the point is, is that every single day, whether it's obstruction, 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 obstruction of having uh, people come to the table with facts, ignoring subpoenas and the rest, every single day, the president is making a case He's, he's becoming self-impeachable in terms of some of the things that he well, is let's, doing. Well, let's pause there. That's an important point you just made. You yeah. think about 1974. Yeah, the House right. Democrats had their articles of impeachment against President Nixon. Article 3 of the impeachment proceedings then was about obstruction of Congress, about abuse of power. Could there be an option for Democrats that you would consider of a narrow impeachment proceeding against President Trump about the issues you just raised, obstruction of Congress? Let me just say that right now we have our committees uh, doing the investigation. It, since you mentioned 1974, at that time, Congress took months, months to um, uh, build a case. They did investigations. Sam Irwin wasn't the Judiciary Committee. That was the committee that was doing the investigation. And then they, with the information they gathered, they came to that conclusion. But we really, you know, we ran and won on for the people agenda to lower health care costs by lowering the cost of prescription drugs and, and uh, strengthening the, uh, the pre-existing condition benefit to make, ensure that that was safe. Lower health care costs, bigger paychecks by building infrastructure of our country uh, in a green way for the future, and cleaner government. They were our three things. And uh, we think that we can work with the president on prescription drugs. He says he wants to do that. We think we can work with him on uh, infrastructure. Uh, so we're in the process of having that discussion. We'll see. Uh, I don't think he's interested in cleaner government. So, uh, <laughs> But I do think that the public is. Uh, and so I'll go to that in a moment. But so people criticize me. They say, why are you even working with him on anything when he won't give you the information for this, that, and the other thing, and, uh, you know, for, for the investigations? And I do think we have a responsibility to the public to get some results for them, to increase their paychecks, to lower their health care costs. And he's not, even though he's the president of the United States, he's not important enough to stand in the way of what we promised the American people that we would do uh, when we won uh, the Congress, and they gave us that vote of confidence. On well, the cleaner government score, oh, oh, um, rather than go to that, let me Thank hear you. what your next question might be. Thank you. Uh, 1985 to 1994, he lost over a billion dollars in that decade. What is that story, that information taken from the federal tax information 
revealed to you about President Trump? Nothing new. <laughs> Nothing new. The, uh, the, the, he's the President of the United States. We're going to try to get some work done with him. But we do have a responsibility to our own oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution to do just that. He takes that same oath. I don't think he takes it seriously. So it tells me nothing. It does tell us, though, that it would be useful to see his tax returns. As the law says, the administration shall give the tax. Shall. It doesn't say may, should, could. Under certain circumstances, it says shall give those tax returns to the uh, to the Ways and Means Chairman. How, how far can you go on that front, Speaker Pelosi? <coughs> Speaker Pelosi, could you hold the Secretary of Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, in contempt? Some Democrats have even raised the prospect of arresting the Treasury Secretary if he does not comply with congressional demands. Well, let me just say that we <laughs> we do have a little jail down in the basement of the Capitol. <laughs> but if we were arresting all of the people in the administration, <laughs> we would have overcrowded jail situation. And I'm not for that. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, the, again, getting to the committee, Richie Neal's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, he has a path uh, that very, again, all of this is so, uh, uh, law and precedent-based to, to do the right thing as we go forward. And there are several options. One of them is to go directly to court. So it's going to probably be settled in court, well, the tax returns? We'll see returns. what the chairman announces, because uh, that's the way we do it. You, you mentioned Congress as a co-equal branch. Just stepping back, you think about all the acting secretaries in this administration. They're not coming to, to Congress for approval of cabinet members on many fronts. You have all the resistance to congressional demands. Is Congress, at this moment in history, actually functioning as a co-equal branch? I think we're a superior branch, uh, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, we have uh, the power to make the law, and the president enforces the law. So we have a, a big role. They're closest to the people, and we have a big role uh, to play. And the president, uh, getting back to those acting, so many people have left the administration in disgrace or dismay, uh, and now so they have acting people. And some of those people have a direct financial, personal aggrandizement on decisions that they make in their departments. That's why they don't want to subject themselves to the scrutiny of being confirmed. It's really a very, very sad situation. Well, that's about a matter for the election to uh, determine, which is only about 18 months away. So uh, we're over halfway, uh, over halfway there. And it'll be interesting, but it shouldn't have to be this way. Uh, look, I've worked with, uh, I've been in Congress a long time, and I understand that we have a difference of opinion in terms of uh, policy. And you come to Congress confident in your point of view but humble enough to listen to other views because you represent your district, other people represent theirs. And so what our founders had in mind is that we would have uh, this debate. What is the role of government on the spectrum? How much federal, how much local, how much state? And that's exciting. 
But when you have a, a White House that is anti-governance, anti-science, it's very hard to stipulate a, to a set of facts that uh, there would be a proper government role in. We don't want any more government than we need, but there's a proper role for governance. And President George Washington cautioned against political parties to at war with their own government. Does that sound familiar to you? So um, uh, that they have acting, they have acting everything. They have an acting chief of staff, and, act, and that doesn't even require congressional approval. <laughs> I get, oh. <laughs> I mean, it's sad. I think we should be very prayerful about this. You know, our founders, I keep going back to them because they imagine the courage that they had to declare independence to wage a war against the greatest naval power that existed at the time, uh, to, uh, as I say, to declare that independence, to fight that war, to win that war, and to establish a country predicated on the equality of people. And thank God they made the Constitution amendable so that it really could uh, live up to the, the hope and promise of it all, the optimism, the courage of it all. And they gave us, they said this, Thomas Paine, you know, the, the, some of our leaders have used temporal markers, Abraham Lincoln, four score and seven years ago, or when he began his Lincoln's greatest speech four years ago, uh, in the, uh, the second, that would be the second inaugural. And, uh, but at the time, Thomas Paine, now are the times that, these are the times that try men's souls. He also said, do you feel that the about times, times have found us. Do you feel that about these times? The times have found us. I do indeed. The times found our founders. They, they recognized it. The times found Abraham Lincoln not to put ourselves in those exalted categories, but the urgency of the challenge to our Constitution, our democracy. This is about an investigation into an assault on, on our elections by a foreign power that the president chooses to protect. How, what would our founders think of that? So again, Have you ever told President Trump about these concerns face to face? Well, I, I think that his, uh, he listens better if you say it through the media. <laughs> Don't you? But I never, I never say anything to anybody. Uh, I, I, I generally, in a, a, I mean, I've served with other presidents. Usually, I don't have any hesitation to tell them what I would say about them right here. But I do say, I pray for the president. I really do pray for him. I pray for him that his heart will open. Our country is a heart has a heart full of love, but it seems to be shut down in this administration. So I, I pray for him mightily, and I pray for the United States of America. Yes. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on the front page of today's post, case closed. <laughs> Isn't that so sad? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's in for a dime, in for a dollar. You know, he might as well go all the way, right? But here's the thing, my dear husband, He's such a sweet man. For some reason, Paul, he is on the mailing list of some Republicans. And the pitch that Mitch McConnell puts out, imagine if you were running, Mr. Costa, for a no thanks. public office. <laughs> well, you never know. I never thought I would, shy person that I was. <laughs> but but his, his pitch for fundraising is that I am the grim reaper. Now, suppose you were running for office. Would that be your pitch? I'm the grim reaper. Oh, that gives me hope. 
<laughs> what an inspiration you are. I'm Grim Reaper. I'm going to kill every bill that comes over from the House. Equal Pay for Equal Work, Violence Against Women Act, Net Neutrality, Dreamers, Equality Act, Ending Discrimination of LGBTQ Community, uh, HR1, Cleaner Government, Voting Rights Act. I'm going to, the list goes on. There are more. Climate Action Now, of course, they're handmaidens of the other side of that issue. So for him to say the Grim Reaper, I have news for him. He may think he's going to kill these bills, but they are alive and well in the public mind. And we have chosen particularly those issues that have broad bipartisan support, e pluribus unum, finding where we can come together. Let's talk about those issues. I infrastructure. When you're in the room with the president last week talking about infrastructure, as a, a veteran leader in democratic politics in this country, how serious is he about getting something done on infrastructure? Are you acting, you want me to be a psychoanalysis? No, uh, just an observer, uh, as a leader. Okay, here's the thing. We have to believe. You always have to see everything as an opportunity. He says he wants to do this. And all the conversations, I would say 80% of the conversations I've had with him since he's become president, he's mentioned that he wants to do infrastructure. So that's the Donald Trump who showed up that day. And, the, and he contends that he wants to do it. Now, what is the definition of infrastructure? He said, I want to do roads. I said, well, we want to do mass transit. We want to do broadband into rural America and underserved urban areas. We want to do um, uh, water. Some of our water systems are 100 years old, made of brick and wood. So if it's clean, if it's clean drinking water, whether it's wastewater projects, whether, whatever it is, uh, whether it's dredging our harbors, uh, uh, facilitating our airports, the rest of that, this has to be a comprehensive approach to it beyond the roads. And I, I think he's at that place. I don't know if he's at the green place where we have to do this in the 21st century, but we'll see. And so where it was left is, how are we going, what investments are we going to make to pay for this? Because we don't want to increase the national debt, even though I do think that this will generate jobs immediately, promote commerce, improve quality of life in terms of keeping people off the roads uh, because we've improved the uh, transit system, et cetera. And, and, um, and the, the list goes on. Clean air, clean water, it's a public health issue. So, so I, I have to believe that he wants to do that, and we have to give him every chance to do so. Who's in charge really on their important. side? We know the president has maybe his interest, but who's actually in charge on infrastructure when you're trying to really put together something? Well, who's in charge in general? You know, <laughs> that would be the, the, the uh, you so have to ask him. It's not clear who the point person is on infrastructure. Him. Well, it changes. But it the changes day to day sometimes? The, well, I, I, I don't know how frequently, but uh, the, the president, well, when we did the Dreamers and we thought we had an agreement with the president on the Dreamers, and he was so proud of the fact that we had come to a bipartisan agreement. He called me that night, this is exciting, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, boom. So then I said the same thing to the White House, who's in charge because the president said he wanted to do this, and then he didn't. But anyway, we just have to be optimistic because I think, well, first of all, the country needs this. The most expensive maintenance is no maintenance. 
the most expensive infrastructure is no maintenance, and it's a danger as well. So this is about, again, it's about mobility and remembering that President, not remembering, but in the history books you would read, that President Eisenhower um, did the interstate highway system in the, when he was president as a national security issue to unify uh, the country. It served many other purposes. It was very bipartisan. Al Gore's father had the bill in the Senate. Lyndon Johnson and uh, Sam Rayburn were the ones who um, got it through the Congress of the United States. So it was very, Speaker, very bipartisan. Do you think taxes or federal fees are necessarily going to need to be increased to help pay for a broader package? Well, that's what we said, we said to the president, not that. What we said to the president, when we meet again, we'll hear how you want to pay for this. So we'll wait to hear what he wants to do. And, but do you think Democrats are going to expect taxes to be raised in, on Sunday? We're going to wait to see what the president is willing to support. Is there any way, he's, he's so, the president, his officials say, really wants a border wall, as you know. Is there any way a border yeah, wall? That, yeah. is, there, is there any way a border wall is part of an infrastructure deal? No. Infrastructure? No, 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 no. But the border wall is part of an immigration conversation, and it might surprise you to know that the president that I quoted the most in the campaign was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, bless his heart. This is the last speech I will make as president of the United States. Does that get your attention from Ronald Reagan? And I want to deliver a message, communicate a message to a country I love. And he talked about the Statue of Liberty and the beacon of hope that that was to the world and what it meant to people in our country who had seen that Statue of Liberty when they came to our country. You have to look, Google it or however you get your information. Reagan's, President Reagan's last speech. He goes on to say, the vital force of America's preeminence in the world is every generation of new immigrants who come to our country. And when America fails to recognize them as a vital force, we will fail to be preeminent in the world. We cannot close the door to immigration as a source of our, the youth and vitality of our country. It keeps America young. I'm not talking about necessarily in age, but in vitality. And he... Um, that was Ronald Reagan, Ronald, President Reagan, President George Herbert Walker Bush, President Clinton, President George W. Bush, mm. President Barack Obama, all subscribed to newcomers coming to America being the, with their hopes, dreams, after, uh, uh, aspirations, vitality, uh, uh, optimism, courage. Those are American values, and many of those people make America more American. All of those presidents, in a bipartisan way, recognize that. And now we have an aberration. <laughs> President Reagan said, Don't, you can't close the door. The president wants to build a wall. The trade talks between the U.S. and China have hit a, a rough patch in recent days. Do you agree with the president's approach to these negotiations and the, the threat of tariffs to be installed on Friday? Well, I believe, uh, look, you don't know this because you were probably just born then, but I've been for th almost 30 years uh, fighting China on uh, trade, human rights, and proliferation of, of uh, technologies that are unsafe, whether it's missile systems and uh, ring magnets used in centrifuge for enrichment of uranium and the rest. So uh, there's a day that goes by, and I say this to the President, that I'm not 
up to date on my China in terms of security, commerce, and human rights. Right now, they have a million Uyghurs in education camps, and nobody's saying anything about it. Uh, they're trying to do away with the culture of Tibet, religion, language, and culture of Tibet. They're arresting, uh, they're undermining the, democ the democratic reforms in, in Hong Kong. So from a human rights standpoint, a value standpoint, I wonder what, how those play in the negotiation. Uh, they have, are asserting themselves in a security front that has concern, but they had been selling missile technology to uh, rogue country, uh, countries of concern for a long time. I thought at the time, when I started this, was be 30 years in, in, uh, in another month for the Tiananmen Square massacre. One year, in, within the following year, we started to say, how can we use the, our trade uh, situation as a uh, lever to release the prisoners of Tiananmen, to stop the sale of the uh, uh, delivery systems, and to gain market access, to gain market access, to stop the uh, piracy of our intellectual property uh, and all of the other concerns that we had. The trade deficit at the time was $5 billion a year. $5 billion, I thought, oh my God, $5 billion. We are certainly gonna free the ch prisoners of Tiananmen Square. We're certainly going to get to change in their behavior in so many ways for $5 billion. Democratic and Republican presidents, President Clinton, President Bush's, all, you're wrong, but well, I could win the vote in Congress, but I couldn't override a veto on most favored nation status for China on this. You're wrong, it's gonna work itself out. Peaceful evolution, we call it. You know what the trade deficit is now? Over $5 billion a week. So should the president hold a line? The, the Chinese decided, as I said at the time, you are deciding to ride the dragon and the dragon will decide when you get off. And here we are. So the president is correct in asserting what we have to do with China. How he's doing it, though, is get, empowering them to hurt our people. What do you mean by that? Our people. What could have been done, uh, and I've suggested this, is uh, that for a long time the Chinese ripped us off, and they continue to do so. But they were using our money and spending it other places, like they were buying from the EU with our money, and the EU was letting, giving them a pass on human rights and this, that, and the other thing, until, what's a nice word for suckered? Until they suckered the UN, the EU into their web, and now the, the EU has a trade deficit with China. So my thought was if you have multilateral approach to this, where we're all saying to the Chinese, this has to stop, that would be real leverage. But instead, the president put tariffs on the EU and, and made them unhappy with us, and the Chinese were laughing all the way to the bank because it kind of weakened the leverage we could have had working together. The stock market was rattled yesterday by the yeah. president's negotiations with China. They're looking for a deal. Are you confident that a deal between this administration and China on a U.S.-China trade deal will happen this week? No. Uh, uh, let me just say that, um, uh, first of all, I never believed that the Chinese were going to honor what they said they were going to do. So that, that I was always, w where is the enforcement 
in any trade agreement, if you don't have enforcement, all you're having is a conversation and a cup of tea. It's not, it, 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 you have to have very strong enforcement. And I've had the chairman of the People's Congress, who's second most important person in China after the president, the, the chairman of the People's Congress, in my own office say to me, when we joined the WTO, we were told we didn't have to obey all those rules. So they're not, even, the, even in the WTO, they have not abided by. This is a very major, major challenge. And the president, I think, is correct to, to try to change it. But you have to come in with as much strength as possible. Uh, and so I was, I was informed yesterday morning, what's today, when, Monday morning, by the uh, trade representatives that they were just going to take a walk from it. But I wasn't surprised They at told all. you they're going to take a walk this week? The, the, the administration Chinese said that the Chinese were going to take a walk. Well, who knows what can so happen. So the tariffs then today. probably go in? The new tariffs that the president threatens yeah. probably get installed on Friday? Well, we'll see. You know, just have to take one day at a time. But this was two days ago that, that they told us. Actually, I guess Friday night the Chinese um, made their decision, but I only heard from the uh, trade representative on Monday morning because he knows of my ongoing interest in China trade, human rights, with, and security issues. Sticking with trade for a moment, how far away is a vote on the overhaul of the North American trade agreement, the USMCA? Yeah. Well, the, the answer to your question is uh, we're as far away as getting an enforcement agreement. Uh, the um, what do we, whatever you want to call it, NAFTA 2.0. The administration doesn't want to touch it. What do you mean? They don't want to touch the... Yeah, well, they have to, because, again, it's enforcement. Uh, I, I myself voted for NAFTA with certain promises that was going to do this, 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 and this from the Clinton administration. It never happened. So unless you have it built into the agreement, what somebody says or writes to you in a letter or side deal or implementing language in a other legislation is not binding on the other country. It's a, us talking to ourselves. So what, what I've said to the secretary, um, USTR. USTR on Monday in that same conversation is enforcement. I keep saying, I can't, I, I don't know exactly what you want. It's enforcement. Enforcement has to be into the, in the trade agreement. There are three areas of concern. One is what it means to American workers and to have uh, uh, workers in Mexico working at so, like $1.50 an hour is not helpful to American workers. I mean, that just draws jobs away. Okay. Secondly is the environment. That's always part of a, uh, of a concern in, um, in a trade agreement. And third, are pharmaceuticals, the concern that what is in the bill will increase the cost of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. And our promise is to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. So those are the three areas of concern. There's some other issues, but those are the three main areas of concern. And uh, even if you could come to agreement on them, if you don't have enforcement, it's just a conversation, just as it is uh, with the Chinese. But, Speaker, how do you resolve those issues? Because Mexico's leaders on one side say they do not want any tweaks to the USMCA, and major labor leaders here in the U.S. 
echo what you have said, that there need to be wholesale changes to a lot of these provisions. How does that ever get resolved and actually bring this bill, to, bring this, yeah. this thing to the floor? Well, we have to do what is in the interest of America's workers, and we cannot mislead them into thinking that there's something. This would be, it'd be like saying, you don't like NAFTA? Let me put a little syrup on top and serve it to you again, and you're really going to like it this time. It, it's just not, it's, it's no difference. So if the administration wants to say, well, we got rid of NAFTA, and what we got was, looks a lot like it, it's, it's, it's not right. But it's not about the politics, or it's about opportunity to do the right thing in terms of workers' rights in our country and in theirs, because, again, there's an impact on uh, what happens to workers in Mexico as to what happens to workers in the United States. The environment, the whole climate issue and the rest, there have to be considerations for climate in there and, and um, again, this pharmaceutical issue. So we hear different things. People say, well, I spoke to this person in Mexico and they said they're willing to open it up and the Canadians say this or that. Well, we're the United States of America and are we going to, what, just fold? That should have been central to the negotiations to begin with. And let me just say something about the trade representative Lighthouse. He's fabulous. He cares about America's workers. He's not one of these trickle-down trade people where if it's okay for corporate America, then it should be okay for you, Mr. and Miss American worker. He's not one of those. He's fabulous. But he's got to get the enforcement in the trade agreement or else we're just, uh, it's not a serious thing. So hopefully that will be soon. I want to get to yes. I just had the President Trump go speak to the freshman the other day again. Uh, he's been in a number of times, as has Lighthouse. And he said, we want to get to yes. It's simple, in the agreement. Or else you don't really have much of a change. On the economy, last week's jobs numbers were very strong. The administration mm -hmm. was touting them. As the leader of the Democratic Party, and you're making your case to the country on the economy, mm -hmm. if people s look at those numbers and they say, feeling pretty good, what's your response to how the Democrats could offer more or do better? Well, the, uh, again, we, we have to win the election and have the White House and the, the Senate as well because we simply don't have shared values right now. Perhaps we can do so with the infrastructure as a way to have more of a prosperity spread to many more people and make bigger paychecks for America's families. But our members go home every week and they put their hand on a very hot stove. And that hot stove is the concern that America's working families have about um, their financial security or their financial insecurity. And it is, while you might say the indicators, the market's doing this one day and that another, and, and these indicators uh, uh, say something, but the fact is, is that wages are not rising in the way that they should uh, by some of the indicators that are there, and unemployment is low. But it is, again, for wage, uh, jobs that are not producing the wages uh, that people need to meet their needs. And people still feel scarred by what happened in 2008, where their homes were underwater, their pensions were at risk, they're living off their uh, savings, their children's uh, education in doubt. So there's still that concern, and 40% of the American people, you've seen these figures over and over again. 
cannot withstand a $500 uh, unforeseen cost, whether it's a water heater or a carburetor or whatever happens to be. So while the president's 1% is doing beautifully, and if they are trickle down, we're bubble up. We think there has to be much more in terms of, that's why we have equal pay for equal work as one of the bills we sent uh, to um, Mitch McConnell that he says he's gonna grimly reap. Uh, the second is the $15 minimum wage fight for 15, which we will be sending them soon. But you have to do something big like an infrastructure challenge. But you can't measure the economic well-being of our country as to how it affects the 1%. Our one, HR1 for us was cleaner government. Stop the voter suppression, re, uh, gerrymandering, all the rest of that. Their HR1 was to a tax scam to give 83% of the benefits to the top 1% in our country. Let's Measure that went to corporate America, which buy bought their stocks, which contributed to the market uh, going up, which is down today, but as you see, it's volatile. So um, when you ask people, when you see the people we represent, they're really pleading with us to get some results for them in terms of their economic security. And healthcare is a very big piece of their financial security. It's not just a health issue, it's a financial security issue. And again, increasing uh, their, their paycheck is very important to them. So it, unless we're moving in that direction, you can have all the indicators you want. The one that means something in these lives is how are they gonna pay the bills? What are their kitchen tables? They're concerned about the boardroom table we're concerned about the kitchen table. And you're also concerned about issues in the world. You, had, you saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Iraq yesterday meeting with officials there, concerned about Iranians, yeah. possible threats against U.S. troops. Has Congress been briefed about what's yeah. going on? We've asked for the briefing, and I think we're negotiating uh, on what that is. I said today or tomorrow, we want to know right away, because there's some people are saying the administration is preparing for war. Well, and they're, not, and, and they're um, describing things in a way that is not consistent uh, with the facts. But we'll see. This does give us the briefing. We've had no success in getting briefings in Congress of the United States on North Korea. They just haven't, get, they've just said, no, we're not coming. And that, again, is a, a, how are we going to uh, do our job if they're not giving us the information and we have to depend on what they tell us is happening there and he's in love with Kim Jong-un. Well, we're not. Uh, so let's have that briefing. So hopefully today or tomorrow. Now, I've been to Bahrain, and I've seen uh, for the, at the Office of Naval Intelligence there, which is uh, uh, their intelligence. And you can see Iran practically from, from where our ship, uh, our, our presence is. Uh, so if there's some threat to us, we want to know about it. But the fact is, is that in terms of Iran, it's really hard to understand the agenda that the president has brought to the table. What bidding is he doing to walk away from the Iran nuclear uh, agreement? And that is um, something that is very important to us to stop a country from producing uh, a, a nuclear weapon. And uh, they walked away from that. Now the Iranians are saying they may 
walk away from it as well, which would be very dangerous to the world. Uh, this ratcheting up, uh, we want to see the briefing. You, it's, it's hard to speak about it up, without seeing it. Do you think, Speaker, that the, this administration is considering military action against Iran? Well, if they're considering military action against Iran, uh, they cannot do the, engage in that without coming to Congress, and they have to make their case. Uh, I read someplace that it may not be so, but I read someplace, it is so that I read someplace, uh, that uh, uh, Pompeo was saying we can use the uh, authorization for the use of force that took us into Afghanistan as the basis for going here. That's just simply not so. It's simply not so. And so um, they would have to make their case. To there is no appetite in our country for war. Uh, it, we have to have peaceful resolution of whatever it is. And if you're not capable of that, uh, then uh, that's something that has to be part of the national discussion. Same thing in Venezuela. We have to have a peaceful resolution of what is happening there. But I don't put that in the same category of the threats. Uh, that they're making in, in, in Iran. It's really sad because the Iran nuclear agreement was uh, an actually masterful, masterful dip diplomatic achievement to have China and Russia who never want to say anything against Iran. Why? Because Iran is a Muslim state that could export some uh, fundamentalism to their regions. And anyway, they had their own pragmatic reason why they would never say anything about Iran. But they did in this case. The uh, Nobel laureates of, of uh, uh, nuclear physicists and the rest of that, they said this should be the model, the, the template for any agreements on nonproliferation that we have. So from a technical standpoint, from a diplomatic standpoint, uh, it just is a remarkable achievement. But the president wanted to undo that. And now, it's really, without getting the briefing, it's very hard to understand. I really don't even want to go there, because this is deadly serious, uh, what, they're, what they're talking about. And uh, I, I, until we get the briefing, I, I just don't want to, I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Are we uh, uh, against what Iran does in terms of supporting uh, groups that we don't have, uh, that are can be considered terrorist groups in the region of uh, their ballistic missile uh, program and the rest. Yes, and we have sanctions against all of that. Uh, but one place we could come to agreement is you must stop the development of a nuclear weapon, and they agreed to do that. Now the president is putting sanctions on those who are not following our path. Let's see what they have to offer in the uh, briefing. Staying with the Middle East just for one more issue. There's been a lot of debate in your conference in, in recent months about the issue of Israel. You're the leader of the no. Democratic Party. When you think about the recent violence on the Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. what is the Democratic view of what's happened there and what perhaps should happen? Well, let's just say, let me just say that I view the establishment of the State of Israel in the 20th century as one of the greatest accomplishments of the 20th century. It was a political, call it political, official uh, establishment of a country. Uh, I, I, it's, it was so exciting. And so Israel, we have shared values. It's our friend in the Middle East for a long time, uh, our only friend, uh, uh, our, our most serious friend in the Middle East, let me put it that way. 
Uh, so Israel's security is very, very important to us. And so many of us support a two-state solution uh, that has a secure Jewish state and, and a state for the Palestinians uh, to reach their fulfillment as well. Uh, the, um, what's happening there is in some ways moving away from that, but again, a peaceful resolution of that is what members of Congress um, by and large would support. There are some who uh, have said things that are not a reflection of our consensus, you know, and uh, we have pointed that out. Uh, but again, Israel's security is important to us. We think Israel's security is further uh, ensured by having a two-state solution, and we don't want to move away from that. We've been waiting for over a year. I was in Israel last year around uh, Passover Easter, and we were told that the president's plan was imminent. Now we're, that was in the end of March of last year, we're 13 months past there, and we keep hearing that his proposal is imminent. Maybe it is. We'll see. But again, we have to find uh, peaceful ways to resolve the conflict. Just in the final few minutes, Speaker Pelosi, some, some politics. I am a politics reporter. Yes. I talk politics. <laughs> will oh, you okay. Thank you. Will <laughs> you insist. Will you endorse in the presidential no. primary? No. I think all the candidates are fabulous, and any one of them would be a better president than the current occupant. What, ex what explains Vice President Biden's lead in the polls? What explains it? Joe Biden. I, mean, <laughs> I think that's self-explanatory. Uh, well, we'll see. You know, here's what I think. I think. And I say this to people when they want to run for president or governor or mayor or speaker or whatever it is, any executive, or even for Congress of the United States or state or local government. If you want to go into the arena, what is your, show your vision. What is your why? Why do you want to get into the arena? What is motivating you? Is it education? Is it climate change? Is it uh, juvenile justice? Is it... Um, uh, fairness in our economy. What, what is drawing you into that? What do you know about that subject that you can exchange ideas with people about? What is your plan to get more people involved to accomplish your goal, to fulfill your vision based on your knowledge and judgment and enhanced by others' uh, knowledge and judgment? All of that is important. We've had beautiful candidates who have all the vision, all the knowledge and experience and judgment, and all of the strategic, you want plans, I got plans, go to my website. The fourth point, that's all up here in the head. The fourth point is in the heart. Who connects with the American people? Who connects? Authenticity is everything. Are you sincerely concerned about my situation? Hopes and dreams, aspirations, apprehensions. And when we watch this presentation in the debates and in the campaign, we'll see who connects. So it's not a question of who am I going to endorse. It's a question of who the American people have their comfort level with. So you're looking for who's most authentic rather than who's most liberal? Well, I think they're all authentic, but, I, but the American people have to feel uh, that uh, connection, most connection. 
And I'll tell you, I, I was showing uh, some of the folks backstage. Uh, I was in uh, Chicago on Monday for a, a women's event. Over 3,000 women came to a fundraiser for Jan Schakowsky, my colleague. And people came through. They had buttons of this, that, and the other thing. Remember the one issue or that? And the one I love the best is Democrat for President. <laughs> so I carry that around with me. Any thoughts on Vice President Biden's rollout so far? I think he's done a good job. I think he's done a good job. But again, it's not up to me to decide. It's up to how the public reacts. Now, he's a known quantity. I'll just tell you about Joe Biden. I mean, he's a lovely person, and he really is. And the measure of that for me is my kids. And my kids, for years, they've loved Joe Biden. And now my grandchildren love Joe Biden. And I tell them the story because we went, he, he appeared at something for us in New York. I have two little grandchildren in New York. Well, they were little then. Now they're 10 and 11, 11 and 12. But they, when they were small, uh, we went to a candy store after that. And they have like, uh, you know, I don't know, chairs that roll around, di different things like that. So the children decided they were going to put up a gate and have their own open sesame. <laughs> then you could get candy if you could say the magic word. But the magic word, they decided, was not open sesame. It was open Biden. <laughs> so I found that to be uh, an interesting emotional connection with the children. So he, he's, a, he's a beautiful, lovely man. Uh, he has, um, and they're all. I mean, let me just say, do you think the, the, women, of the all female of candidates in the race are getting enough attention? Never, never enough attention, never enough attention. No, please. It's a funny thing. We just have to set our sights in a little bit of a different way. It's just almost. Uh, I don't. I don't know. That's a whole other session. Come but back I can that. tell you, as a woman speaker, uh, now I get a lot more attention. When I was speaker before, it was like, what's that? Now well, they know. So. People were speaker <laughs> of the house. <laughs> no, but I mean, when it was a man, it was, well, what do they say? What do they say? You know, now, um, <laughs> so I think we've broken through that. And I think one of the things that I'll close by saying this, if that's in time to close, one of the reasons that you know, people say, you know, you're not so modest as you used to be, you used to you know, give everybody else credit, and I still do. But I say this because I want women to have the confidence to go out there and be themselves and know their power and just understand that it's important for women. Uh, the most wholesome thing we can do for our political and governmental process is to have more women in leadership roles there and participate. And, and we work very hard as House Democrats. We have 115 mem women members of Congress. 91 are Democrats because we made a decision to say, know your power to the women. We need you here. So you have to take credit. So they say, you're like Nancy Pelosi unplugged. You're out there just saying, we did this and we did that and we're going to do this and don't you dare do that. Because I want women to say, you know, take credit. You don't have to take credit for something you didn't do, but don't hesitate to be confident about what you have done. Because um, self-promotion is a terrible thing, but sometimes somebody has to do it. And, uh, <laughs> and clearly, women have to do it. So I, I think we should almost, uh, I don't want to say overcompensate for the attention we haven't given to women uh, in the public arena. 
but we certainly have to give them their fair share. And they are great. The women candidates are just, just absolutely great. But in any event, um, I thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts this morning. Again, let's be coming. prayerful. Let's take a deep breath and be prayerful because the times have found us, all of you in this room, too, for the role you'll play to save our Constitution and our democracy. Speaker Pelosi, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.